Uh, Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And if you're able to stand to honor God in the reading of His Word, would you join me in doing so? We're going to read verses 1 through 4. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So, or more accurately, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Uh, Count others more significant than yourselves. Uh, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we desire to be a church family that is filled with your joy. And you teach us in your word the path that we must walk if we're going to be that kind of church family. You've already taught us in the previous verses that you gave to the Apostle Paul how to live lives of joy in the midst of a pagan world, a world that we see collapsing all around us, a world that we see compromising what were at one time the core values of this great country and exchanging those core values for something so pagan and perverse that it is hard for us to fathom how we could have got to this place in such a very short period of time. It is the world in which you have placed us, and you teach us how to live in this world as a joyful people by understanding who we are and why we are here so that we can be a joyful people both in our gathering to worship you, in our gathering to study your holy word, and then our going into this world to be the witnesses that you have called us to be. So we ask this morning for the help of your Holy Spirit so that we might comprehend to the level that you want us to comprehend the truths of these four very powerful verses. And then enable us by your Spirit, we pray, to apply them to our lives individually and to our families and to those places where we go to school and work and are involved in all kinds of relationships in this community and beyond So teach us this day and teach us in such a way that not only will we be instructed, 
but that we would be transformed by the work of your Holy Spirit through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you pick up Peter's second letter that he wrote and you would begin reading chapter 1, you would read that Peter encourages, no, he actually exhorts that every believer make every effort, energetic effort, exhausting effort to make our calling and our election sure. He wants us to do this so that we would not stumble and so that you and I can live with absolute assurance that at the end of our lives, we're going to enter into the eternal kingdom of God. But it's not just Peter that does that. Paul exhorts believers in Corinth that before you ever come to the Lord's table to take the elements of the Lord's Supper, you should examine yourself. And he tells us what we are to be looking for. Are we really in the faith? Uh, Do we really belong to Jesus? Are we really being faithful in following Jesus? I turn to Colossians, just one book ahead of Philippians, and listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Go back with me to 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to this not just confused church. This church had become so compromised by the world that it was corrupt. And the problem in Corinth was they did not apply the gospel to their lives because they did not know the gospel. So Paul begins in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians with these words, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if... If what, Paul? If you hold fast, if you remain faithful, if you keep on going and growing in faithfulness to Jesus... If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, unless you believed for nothing. Now, why would I share that at the beginning of this sermon this morning? Do I want to scare you? 
Is it really that what I want is to bring distress into your heart on this Sunday morning to disturb you? No, I want to exhort myself and I want to exhort you. I want to encourage myself and I want to encourage you that the Bible calls us consistently to look at ourselves in relationship to the Lordship of Jesus. Who do we say we are? And whatever we say we are, then that confession ought to be visible in our character and our conduct. And if who we say we are is not clearly visible consistently in our character and conduct, it's not that we need to clean up our act. It's that we need to look at our relationship with Jesus. Is Jesus really the Lord of our lives? Are we living under the lordship of Jesus in such a way that it's clear to us and clear to others that he is Lord? There are two basic truths that we must put in place as we begin this morning so we can hear this text in the way that Paul brings it to us. The first truth is that there is not a child of God in this room that is not capable of losing your way in relationship to the Lordship of Jesus completely. Uh, You can so walk away from Jesus that you begin to live as if you never knew him. You can get to a place in your relationship to Jesus where you're living in such a way that you can't believe where you have gotten. You can't believe what you're thinking. You can't believe what you're saying. You can't believe what you're doing. Every believer in this room is capable of that kind of conduct. Still a child of God, still loved by God, still wanting to be committed to God. When you are a believer and you are wandering away from God, you can never get so far from God that he forgets you and... You can never get so far from God that you forget him. Because what happens in your heart is the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart because God has placed the Holy Spirit in your heart and he's convicting you of your sin so that when you're in that wilderness place and you're wandering away from God, there is in your soul this gnawing ache that you can't explain that you're not who you say you are and you're not living as you should. That's a good thing. Because God is using the wonderful gift of guilt to bring you back into his presence. That's the first truth. Here's the second truth. We must never make the fatal mistake that what we use as the means and methods of calling people to come to Jesus and To follow Jesus, we must never equate the means we use in a one-to-one correspondence with the meaning of what it really means to be saved. Every denomination, every tradition of the church has ways of calling people to commit their lives to Jesus. Now, I don't want to pick on my Methodist brothers and sisters here, but Let's not talk about Baptist for a minute. Let's talk about Methodist. 
the means by which a person commits his or her life to Jesus, designed by the Wesleyan tradition that's found in the Methodist church, the means is this. A child comes to a certain age and they go through a confirmation class. And during that confirmation class, they learn a lot of great truth and they are taught a lot of great doctrine at the end of which they are confirmed into the church and they are seen at that point as Christians. Confirmation doesn't make a Christian no more than joining a church in the Baptist tradition makes a Christian. Would you agree? You can't confuse the means we use That can be good and noble means with what it means to be saved. God saves. And God saves alone by his grace. And when God saves us, we are saved forever. And his Holy Spirit lives in us and nurtures us, encouraging us, exhorting us, convicting us, confronting us, comforting us, calling us to... Growth in Jesus. You can lose your way. Some of you may be here this morning and you are wandering from Jesus and you know it. But God brought you here. And he brought you here because he wants to bring you back. That gnawing ache in your soul is not that you have a stomach illness. It's God. He wants you back. The only person who can wander away from Jesus or wander away from the church of Jesus and feel okay about it is that person who has equated the means of being saved with the meaning of being saved. I know I'm a Christian because... And then you fill in the blanks with what you did to become a Christian, which has no meaning at all unless God was at work in that to change your life completely and to change your life forever. Not only can we lose our way as Christians, a whole church can lose her way. The church in Philippi had lost her way. And the power of the Holy Spirit working in the Apostle Paul is giving to Paul these words to call the church back into the kind of life in the church that brings joy. There were these very powerful preachers and very popular preachers that had come to Philippi. And they had drawn many away. People were attracted to them, lured by them. And many would follow after them because they presented a gospel that was different from Paul's gospel. It was a gospel that was about them and about their needs and their desires and their interest. And many would walk away. But as they walked away, they were walking away from a church that was having conflict. It was real conflict. It was Hatfields and McCoys kind of conflict. It was people that were lining up opposed to each other in the church. So in the most important section in Philippians, beginning in chapter 1, verse 27, and going through chapter 2, verse 18... 
Paul addresses, first of all, how do we have joy as the people of God when we live in a pagan world? That's what we looked at last week. But today he turns to the church. How do we experience joy in the church? God desires it for us. God wants it for us. How does it happen? Well, the key, the key is one word. It's a word that Paul hammers. The word is unity. It's the key to real joy in a family. It's the key to real joy in the family of God. But it's problematic. It's problematic because unity is created by God, by His Spirit, and it comes through the faithful preaching and teaching and gathering under His Word as His people learn to love the Word of God and long for the Word of God so as to live out the Word of God so that unity is produced by the Spirit of God. Do you know that you and I have no strength, no power, no ability, no gifts to produce unity in a church? We just can't. There's no program that will produce it. There's no personality that will produce it. There's no path that will produce it. Only God. It's seen in the Trinity That unity that we desire is given us in God the Father relating to God the Son, relating to God the Spirit, one God. One God in three persons. Those persons are one in essence, different in their expression. Jesus prayed for this unity. It's the kind of unity that can only be produced by the presence and the power of God. God creates it, and he brings his people together under his authority, as seen in his word, and he gathers us to worship this one God, and then he sends us as his witnesses into the world. Unity is the work of God. And when God is working, there is a path that we are on as his people, and Paul shows us this path. But he shows us something else. Paul is very clear here. He speaks very candidly. There are definite perils to unity. Paul tells us what they are. He tells us what they are because he wants us to look for them in our church. Are they present? And if they're present, then we need to address them spiritually and biblically. First, the path. Paul begins here in verse 1 with the word, therefore. Alec Motier says there's always a blessing in the word, therefore. And Paul here is taking us back to the worthy life, the life that's worthy of the gospel, the life in which we've been brought to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and Jesus is Lord, and we're living under his lordship in the world. And we're living that way because we're a part of a church where God is producing 
unity. And there are certain markers of this unity. The first one is this, our, our position in Christ. Paul says, if, and, and the phraseology here is, if and there is, this is certain. If there's any encouragement in Christ. In Christ is Paul's favorite phrase for describing a Christian. Who is a Christian? A Christian is someone who is in Christ. Well, what does it mean to be in Christ, Paul? What are you talking about when you say in Christ? Well, this is what he means. Number one, he means you are absolutely committed to Jesus as the number one person in power in your life. Number two, it means that you have been brought into such a relationship with Jesus that you enjoy daily communion with him. You are in Christ. Christ is in you through the power of the Holy Spirit and you commune with him through his word and through prayer and through praise, uh, through connections in your church family. You commune with him as that which is sweet and beautiful and powerful that you cannot live without. As the deer pants for the flowing stream, so my heart pants for you, O oh Lord. That's communion. Genuine communion with God through Jesus Christ that leads us into a community. Our commitment to Jesus leads us into a church, always, no exceptions. So if there's any Paul says, if, if there's any encouragement that you are in Christ, and there is. If there's any, the word here means passion. If there's any passion, any comfort from love. What love is this? This is the love of God, the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. The love that God has poured into our hearts. If there's any participation, the word is koinonia, it means partnership. If there's any partnership that comes through the power of the Spirit, if the Spirit of God is in you, the Spirit of God is prompting you to be a part of a church family pursuing together hand in hand and heart to heart the purpose of God for you. Paul says, if any of that is in you, and it is, if you're a believer, then you are to live, look at the next words in verse 1, you are to live with affection and sympathy. The word affection is a feeling word. What happens in a church that is really unified when somebody's hurting? What do you feel, brother? What do you feel, sister? Do you feel their pain? Uh, do you feel their hurt? Do you feel their sorrow, their sadness? When a church is brought together in unity, we belong to each other because we belong to God. And we have feelings that are deep in us, groanings when we 
hear that somebody is facing difficulty or danger. And we hurt. We not only hurt and struggle together in our life together as a church family, but we have sympathy. Uh, the word is the word for compassion. It, it is an expression of mercy. We see someone wandering from Christ. We see someone wandering from the church. We see someone who's not acting as we think a believer ought to act. We do not point fingers. We don't criticize them. We don't even talk about them. You want to talk to somebody? Talk to God. Get on your face before God and plead his mercy on them. And then get up from your knees and text them or call them and say, can I come to where you are and just talk with you? That's not just the preacher's job or the staff's job. That's everybody's calling who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That our first instinct is not ever judgment. Our first instinct is not complaint or criticism or condemnation. Our first instinct is mercy. Why? Never get over how merciful God's been to you. Never get over that. Never get over how kind he's been to you. I don't want to say this cruelly or crudely, but every person in this room deserves to be in hell, right? And God's mercy has transferred us from hell to heaven, and we are recipients of the beautiful, powerful grace of God. You never know what somebody's going through that's wandering away from Jesus, and you're pointing fingers at them? You're the Pharisee in the temple saying, I thank you, God, that I'm not like those other people. Paul gives us these markers of unity, and then he turns to the perils. Before he turns there, though, he speaks as a pastor. He's a pastor. Verse 2, complete, complete my joy. Paul says, I want to be a joyful preacher. I want to be filled with the joy of the Lord Jesus. So would you complete my joy? Well, Paul, how can we complete your joy? And he, he tells us. Being of the same mind. Bring your life under the mind of Christ, and the mind of Christ is revealed in the Word of God. Paul uses a word here that is used 26 times in his writings, and 10 of them in Philippians, and several of them right here. It means to have our focus set on God and to assume that our brothers and sisters have the same focus and that our love is love for Jesus that spills over into love for one another. So by the power of God, we are brought together 
through the Spirit of God, under the anointing of the Spirit of God, through the authority of the Word of God, we are brought together in unity. You know, across the United States of America during the days of COVID, we have seen thousands of pastors walk away from churches. Because of the finger pointing, the criticism, the condemnations, the caustic remarks, the disagreements that have led to debates, Somebody may be protecting me, but I've never heard any of that here during COVID. Thank you. I've just not heard that. I get calls from fellow pastors and say, how hard is it for you? And I say, it's, I don't know that it's hard. I haven't faced that kind of difficulty. I'm grateful. Because it is hard if you're facing that, trying to deal with what we've had to deal with during the last, what feels like a hundred years. Paul says, I want my joy as a preacher. And I want you to be at the center of it in the church in Philippi. I love you and I love what God has done and will do. But right now it's tough for you. So trust the Spirit of God to bring you to the same mind and that you're saturated with the love of God and God brings you together in one accord. So how is that going to happen? Well, here are the perils. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition. That word... That word can be translated jealousy. It can be translated strife. It can be translated envy. It can be translated competition. Paul says, don't live that way, church. God has called you to be his church in this place. You're not to mimic another church. You're not to try to be like the world around you. You are to seek to be under the governance of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God by way of the leadership God has given you, the kind of church that you're called to be. Don't do anything of from selfish ambition. Don't compete. One of the movements of many megachurches right now is not to be satisfied where they are, but to go out and establish satellite churches in other communities. Why do you need to do that? Why? Because in those communities, there are lots of churches. Why not go to one of those smaller churches and say, can we help you? Can we come alongside you and bring you the kind of strength that you need to reach your community? You've been here. Selfish ambition. Can it happen in a church? 
It doesn't take but one or two people saying, you know, I don't like the way things are going, so I want my way. Gather one or two others to you. First thing you do is pray, but what you're really after is your way, my way. Selfish ambition. And pride. The word pride here means to glory in yourself. It can be translated different ways as well. Paul says if you're going to have a church, a true church that is going to be united, this has to go. Now you need to know that what he's addressing here was considered in his world, in the world in which he lived. These two things were considered virtues. Exert yourself, assert yourself, be yourself, embrace yourself, be proud of yourself, elevate yourself. Those were virtues. But they're not virtues. They're vices. And we must see them for what they are and address them and Let God eliminate them. How does he do that? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in, what's the word there? In what? The word's humility. It's the key to everything. It's the key to unity in the church. It's the key to our lives and relationship to one another. Humility. Uh, Do you know in, in, in Paul's world in which he lived, humility was seen as ruinous. Particularly for men. Men are supposed to be aggressive, assertive, strong. Men don't cry. Men never cry. I tend to think real men ought to cry. And some of us ought to cry a lot. And cry a lot over our failure to be men in our homes and in our churches. But over our failure to be men in relationship to other men. Most men will never share with another man what he's really struggling with. Why? Because we do not value humility. To be humble means that you've got to be willing to say to someone else, I am not what you think I am. And I need you to love me, help me, pray for me, confront me, comfort me. How many of us have somebody like that in our lives? Humility. What does it look like? We're done. Paul tells us what it looks like. But in humility, he gives us three things. I want you to see them. They're right before there is they're right before you in your Bible. So see them. Number one, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is not you thinking less of yourself. 
It's not humility. Humility is thinking of yourself less because your mind is focused on others. You're looking around at your brothers and sisters. You want to know their needs. You want to reach out to them and care for them and minister to them. You want to love them. You want to engage them. You want to embrace them. Count others. You can't have selfish ambition thinking that you've got it all together and other people need to be like you are as you point fingers in all kinds of ways. You can't be that way and be a person of humility. Humility, I'm a sinner who is saved by the grace of God and I'm struggling to be more and more like Jesus and I want you to help me do that and I want to help you do that. That's humility. It's our joining together in the awareness of who we really are and stop playing games. Number two, Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interest. He doesn't say that we are to forget our interest, does he? Just don't look there all the time. We, we, need, we need times when we can be quiet. We need times when we can be alone. We need solitude. We need separation from the world. We need, we need times when, when we are in the word of God in prayer and our souls are being re-nurtured and re-nourished. When we had little kids at home, which has been forever ago, but there was a rule in our house that when when an adult, that adult being me, walked in the house. You know what it is, Daddy, to walk in the house and you got kids running up to you and said, Daddy, 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 you won't believe what Mama did to me today. We had a 15-minute rule. I need 15 minutes. Then you can do whatever you want to do, say whatever you want to say, engage in any way you want to engage, but don't do that when I first come in. We, we need to provide for ourselves spiritually, emotionally. Sometimes we can get so caught up in other people that we define our meaning by other people, right? And then thirdly, Paul says, but also, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, Paul, didn't you just say that? Count others more significant than yourselves, and now you're saying the same thing over again as if we didn't get it? No. Because you know what the word others means here? It's a unique Greek word, and you know what it means? It means other people who are different from you. You may want to look around this room when we're done, just as we stand up, look around. How many people in this church could you name by name this morning? I have a peculiar view of the church. I believe a church is getting too big, really too big, when you don't know everybody in it. I believe that. Because we're called to be a community. We're not a corporation. And a community requires that we know each other. Now, here's the second question. How many people 
when you look around that you know are very different from you. Do you know and do you engage? It's easy, you know, to, Jesus says this, to love people and hang out with people who are like you, right? What's the mark of the church? When we can engage people that are very different from us. And we can love them. And they can love us. And the goal is not to make them like us. And their goal is not to make us like them. The the goal is we're brothers and sisters in a church. And we joyfully share these relationships. We, We might not understand some things that... I mean, I walked in this morning. And Greg is sitting up here with a Florida Gator shirt on. I offered him some duct tape to cover it up, but he wouldn't cover it up. Now, that's a minor difference, right? I know what you're saying, bookends. That's a minor difference. But there can be major differences, right? What matters most? We belong to Jesus, who is Lord. And under his lordship, we're seeking to be filled with his joy as we reach out in love to each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that unity is not an ideal to be strived for. It is a reality to be lived out which we cannot achieve on our own. So when it happens, it is the work of It is the supernatural work of your spirit. It is among your people brought together by the power of your spirit under the authority of your word, seeking to live in obedience to Jesus and in fellowship with one another, where our goal together is to love you and to grow in our love to you and one another and to serve you with gladness. So God... Would you do that work in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.